Welcome back to Leaders of Color. On today's episode, we are joined by Mayumi, who is originally from Japan, but grew up in various places around Asia and North America. She has several years of organizing and professional work experience in Southeast Asia, East Asia, the Caribbean, and North America on issues of deforestation and climate change, gender equity, anti-racism, and indigenous self-determination movements. Mayumi completed her bachelor's at McGill University in honors geography with minors in Arabic and East Asian studies and a master's at the University of Cambridge in sociology with a focus on anti-racist praxis in an anti-carceral movements. She has been awarded by the UN and has been featured on National Geographic and NHK World News for her activism and work in gender, climate, and racial justice movements. She currently works as a researcher for the Samuel Center for Social Connectedness and is the founder and executive director of the Solidarity Library, an organization devoted to educational justice and knowledge equity. She will begin her PhD in sociology at the University of Cambridge as a Gates Scholar in the fall of 2021. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sarisha. Hope you are well and safe. How are you doing out in the UK with COVID? The situation here has gotten better. Uh, I think they're on the process of lifting restrictions on lockdown. And I think there's now some ability to mingle between two households, but still like a maximum of six people. I mean, especially during the peak months of January, February, the situation was so dire that I think, you know, everything was shut for so many months, just as I think Canada or Ontario also just went into a lockdown, right, from what I've heard? Yes, so I take it you're not wanting to come back here anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's unclear if I have to, you know, go back at some point to get my visa or whatnot for the UK. But at least for now, yeah, I'm, I'm safe and I can still exercise and I have a job and I know all those things I'm very grateful for. And uh, that's not something that is guaranteed for all people right now. So I do feel very grateful that, I, that I'm in a very safe space at this time. And I hope you're well as well. Are you all right? Are, how are you doing? In, are you in Ottawa? Or? Yes, I'm in Ottawa still going into another lockdown, I guess, as of tomorrow or the next day. I don't know. But I just have barely left the house for the past year and a half anyway. So <laughs> it's, we're like covered in construction because we're in a new area. So we can't really walk outside. And then my car broke down and I haven't gotten it fixed yet. So I can't drive anywhere to then go walk at a park or something. So that's fun. But like you said, I have a job I'm employed in. And that's really what is keeping me sane, <laughs> being able to take care of myself. Is spring around the corner or is it still like minus 20? It's minus three right now, but it is really sunny. So hopefully that sticks around. We were supposed to get like 10 centimeters of snow two days ago and that didn't happen. So that's great. <laughs> um, but but yeah, hopefully we'll end this sooner rather than later, but we'll see. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so we're here to talk a little bit about your organization, the Solidarity Library. Can you share with us what your organization does, how you got started, and what struck you to, to create this in the first place? Yeah, I guess I could actually start with the last question. Originally, the idea was founded after I completed my master's and I had completed my dissertation. And throughout the process, the methodology was one that implemented participatory action research. So that's a research methodology that's practiced a lot in um, global in the global south and also in indigenous research traditions, which says that you have to do research alongside the communities rather than just studying these communities. Right. Like that's a very 
typical way of doing research in the academy is to just study them and then write about a community that you have no contextual understanding about. And that's, I mean, that's mm-hmm. very common. And, and we can see that that is a dominant issue that exists in the academy. But obviously, the academy is a very white and elitist space. So, so I mean, that's a reason why this kind of methodology is so dominant there. So I think I, I had done this dissertation. And my research was focusing on how incarcerated communities, formerly and currently incarcerated communities, are resisting in online and offline spaces. And at the end of, you know, during and after the, my interviews, I wanted to think about how could I actually use this research beyond just my master's dissertation? And, and how could I actually give back to the people who took their time to speak to me? And somebody, one of the the folks who I interviewed said, you know, why don't you create this resource hub, right? Like you have so many marginalized folks who are affected by the digital divide. And I mean, this was before COVID, but you can see now that during COVID, the digital divide has just been exacerbated even more, right? Like not everybody has internet at home. Not everybody has a computer. And so... You can see that, you know, marginalized communities, one, they might not have access to digital technologies, but two, when they do have access, their narratives are not the dominant ones, right? Even though we talk about Black Twitter and a lot of social activism that happens in in social media, still the majority of journalistic mediums and mass media is still dominated by this, you know, white voices. And so I wanted to kind of challenge that, right? Like the inequities in knowledge production and and representation. And so that's where this idea originally started. But then it actually kind of molded into something else. So it did function as a resource hub for a while, and uh, it still does. And so we provide tools and toolkits and, and multimedia resources and articles that destigmatize conversations around different social issues and environmental issues. So, you know, that might be like prison abolition or anti-racism or environmental justice, older people's rights. So, so we try to teach uh, online communities about these issues and and steer to certain resources where they can learn more about these issues. Uh, But also, I think now we're actually kind of veering away from that and trying to do more, right, like actually create actionable change. And so we've launched a few programs, we've partnered up with some high schools, we've been delivering COVID-19 relief kits, so study uh, materials to low-income students of color, because again, you know, it's quite an an invisible problem now with COVID, because we're all studying at home, we're not visibly seeing the oppression of low income students who don't have, you know, basic educational materials to, to perform well in their in their studies. And, you know, I think that that's obviously an immediate concern that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And then now we've just kind of launched this fellowship program, and, and that's really about trying to shift the, the kind of representation that exists within higher education. And so again, like, like I mentioned previously, you know, higher education is a very elitist and white space. And you know, if we continue to give folks who come from upper middle class backgrounds or wealthy backgrounds and predominantly white students the opportunities to access higher education, then we're constantly in this vicious cycle where we're not allowing students of color or low-income students or, you know, perhaps undocumented students to access the education that we all deserve. And that kind of drives further cycles of, of inequity and, and cycles of poverty uh-huh. and job 
opportunities or, or lack thereof. That's the gist of what we do. Uh, we mm-hmm. are learning. I know like uh, uh, same with leading in color, right? You you kind of mold your programs to how you interact with with the people that use your, your organization and the website that you have. Mm-hmm. So we're also continuously changing our programs to match the needs of our users. Yeah. So what does your current programming look like? We just recently launched two days ago our fellowship. So it's it's called the Edu Justice Graduate Fellowship. And uh, essentially, it is a program that aims to pair mentors with mentees. So everybody who will participate in this fellowship will be regarded as a fellow, but we kind of break it down into sort of two groups. So one would be the fellows that will be mentoring the mentees. And they are folks who are passionate about social justice uh, and they want to give back to the communities they come from or they are allies to uh, our communities. And so these mentors are now graduate students or they are have graduated already. But the primary role of this mentor is that they can help the mentees select postgraduate programs and kind of check in with them because you know, attending higher education in a space where you're traditionally not represented can be kind of a, a daunting task. So we want to guide them through that process. And essentially, they would provide CV and career and ad hoc support and guide the fellows to apply to these postgraduate programs and also scholarship opportunities as well. A central component of this fellowship is that whether you're a mentor or a mentee, you would carry out a community service or a social justice event. And of course, that's quite difficult, especially during times of COVID. But you know, we do have some creative ideas already, um, especially some ideas around anti-prison industrial complex, um, organizing events that one fellow is actually thinking about where they attend at Harvard, where they are doing their PhD in sociology. And so, I mean, there there are ways to definitely circumvent the current restrictions of COVID. But, you know, one of the major tenets of this fellowship is that all fellows have to be social justice oriented. And so the the kind of programming that takes part in this fellowship is also highly justice oriented. Mm -hmm. And so we have our fellows that are mentors, but then right now we're actually in the process of recruiting mentees. So these are students who have completed a bachelor's degree or have recently graduated and and maybe they're working or maybe they're not. And they're looking to apply to postgraduate programs in the 2021-2022 year. So they would be matriculating in 2022. Really, this fellowship is is centered around allowing the mentees to to hone in on their research skills. So they would conduct a, a social justice research study of their choice, and they would be paired up with a mentor who would kind of have a relationship with them based on mutual interests and or kind of lived experiences and, and upbringing. And and as you know, similarly to the mentors, they would also carry out a community service or a social justice event. So there's there's quite a lot of things that are a part of this fellowship. But what we really aim to do through this is to try to disrupt the systemic injustice that exists within higher education, right? I mean, if you look at the composition of students who have access to higher education, particularly I'm talking about schools that are perhaps, you know, considered elite, quote unquote, or or ranking highly. I mean, unfortunately, we value these things, even though, you know, you can get a good education. And in many institutions, if you look at, at the kind of composition and the student demographics of these schools, they are very much a homogenous group of people. 
And, you know, myself, I just feel like now that I've entered this space, I, I feel like that just fundamentally has to change because you can see how educational opportunities then leads to widened access to jobs. And then that determines, you know, perhaps where you live and, and the kind of networks that you have exposure to. And then that will kind of then funnel down into your kids' education and and the people that you know. And so it, it really is a, a vicious cycle. And I think that we can amalgamate folks who are committed to addressing this and disrupting it. There are some people within this space that believe in equity. And so my my whole point with this fellowship program is to actually create a space where this can happen. What got you started in wanting to focus this on academia, mm-hmm. in particular, and social justice education within that field? Was it the experiences you had at university yourself or just the things you were noticing from others? How did that impact you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely like a multi-pronged answer, that one. One, I think, you know, you and I both went to McGill. We've we've known each other since then. And so, I mean, it's it, it wasn't a secret that <laughs> McGill also had a disproportionately upper class or upper middle class demographic students. Not necessarily, you know, while we had to do a fellowship, that required us to get money. We had to work part-time jobs. Not everybody had to do that, right? And I think that just shows you how small differences can can create long uh, long term problems, right? So you have students at McGill who can focus on their studies. They don't have to work. Their parents are paying for their tuition. They don't experience the microaggressions that students of color face on campus, and so. You know, while I think that mental health is definitely a huge issue amongst all students, I think that, you know, that's one element. They do not worry about the kind of anxiety that students of color experience because of racism on campus, which is which is very, very real. So, you know, I mean, just imagine if you are that kind of identity and you move through your university career kind of unscathed from different social and environmental factors that students of color have to face, you can imagine that by the time they graduate, they have so many different resources at their disposal. And then, you know, perhaps that will translate to these students getting a good job. And then maybe after a few years, they will apply to postgrad programs and not having worked several jobs during their their undergrad or having taken unpaid internships because they could, they are now positioned in a good position to attend you know, perhaps the the Harvard, the Yales, the Cambridge, the Oxfords of the world. And I mean, I very much see that here. I, I told you I did my, my master's here. And I mean, there's quite a homogeneity of students here. And, and you can just see it for the kind of absence of attention to kind of the, the, the classism and the elitism that exists within these spaces, right? Like oftentimes in my college that I was placed in, uh, in my postgraduate program, everyone would say like, oh, this place is so diverse. But like diversity was always conceptualized in like just the the appearance of how you look, right? Mm-hmm. Just because you come mm-hmm. from like Germany, like that does not make you diverse. I mean, that's one mm-hmm. element of diversity. But, you know, if everybody is a white European, like that's not ultimately the concept of, of making a diverse cohort who has access to higher education. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, of course, that's, you know, there's so many other reasons why I started this. I I also just realized that once I started talking to people or folks who 
are in the same spaces as me right now, which is, I, I also admit, like I am also now part of this highly classist and elite space, I've realized how much those who are in positions of power, and including myself, we do not make space for those who come from underserved communities to join us in this space. And that's a real problem. And so you can see how, you know, if if somebody has an, a job opportunity at their workplace, immediately they're going to go to their, their networks, right? But if your network is just people who look like you, who come from the same class background as you, then you know that those opportunities are just going to be retained within whoever exists in your same socioeconomic sphere. Mm-hmm. And so like, again, you know, I've, I've just seen so many unethical circumstances in which folks who are wealthy help other folks with application materials and and applying mm-hmm. to different programs, whether it's for school or whether it's for jobs. And to me, like that's fundamentally unethical. And mm-hmm. I just feel like based on my upbringing, I, I cannot be complicit in the situation because mm-hmm. I feel like having struggled when I was younger and now being in a position of privilege where I have the ability to change that, I, I feel like it is my moral responsibility to do something about it. And luckily, I've met some incredible people who also do operate in this elitist space, but they do believe in dismantling educational inequity. And so that's that's why we kind of created this fellowship to address that. Yeah, and I think you make a really great point about it being both insular and cyclical in nature when we're trying to fight these class systems that exist within higher education and and how they are like colonial institutions. I mean, <laughs> you mentioned we went to McGill named after literal slave owner yeah. like these these institutions were not built for us to be there in the first place but what you mentioned about not being able to effectively live with that inequality and inequity i think reminds me of there's a quote from Maya angelou that i really like where she says do the best that you can until you know better and then once you know better do better and i think that kind of embodies what you're representing is is we might make mistakes and and I've definitely made a lot as I've as I've grown and and learned more and gained the language and skills to be able to effectively communicate inequity effectively but that we can't just sit idly by and take part in these systems and use them to our benefit because we've managed to to get into them and then just let other people sit on the sidelines and and not have that same access So I think that's really imperative work that you're doing because a lot of the pieces around higher education affect racialized communities for sure, but also immigrant racialized communities, right? And people who come to to these Western countries as as immigrants economically or as refugees and have, like my family, the idea that, okay, we'll pull ourselves out of poverty and pull ourselves out of suffering vis-a-vis education, right? And then that pressure being what supports you throughout your life like you get a good education means you'll get a good job means that you'll be able to be self-sufficient means that you'll be able to have income which is a linear system that doesn't actually work if you're racialized but that's what they that's what they tell us will work right yeah so I think that's that's really important to the work that you're doing yeah I mean I think that's also why our fellowship pays attention to the intersectionality of, of, of identities, right, in terms of who gets access to higher education. Because one, we're talking about there is a homogeneity, a racial homogeneity of those who have access to education. But then even if you look at folks who are not white, communities of color who have access to higher education, I mean, it is 
predominantly wealthy East Asians and South Asians, mm-hmm. you know, who mm-hmm. whose families were able to immigrate to North America, to Canada, to the U.S., because they were part of the, the brain drain, right? But this doesn't, mm-hmm. this really, what it does is overlooks the experiences and the struggles of other communities of color yeah. who, like you said, might have come through, you know, as refugees, you know, for a lot of Southeast Asians, like Cambodians and Vietnamese folks mm-hmm. in the US. I mean, they are not in the same economic position as you know, mm-hmm. myself, as someone, you know, someone who's Japanese, like as I identify as a Japanese person. Similarly, I think that painting that picture that, you know, all the communities of color that have access to this education are are like the model minority. They worked hard and they mm-hmm. got there. I mean, that's a complete myth, right? That's why yeah. our fellowship wants to look at the intersection of not just race, but also class and, and a multitude of other factors. I mean, we really focus on the lived experience, as you mentioned. But But as you also said, like at McGill, on the one hand, you don't you recognize that McGill is a colonial institution, and like we had to walk down that one street where that statue of him was erected, and you know it's like this university is obviously commemorating this slave owner, and at the same time you detest that. On the other hand, if you choose not to go to McGill, your space and your position at that university will be occupied by somebody who is, you know just a a white person who has money, right? Mm -hmm. And so like Mm -hmm. your existence, it really does matter. I mean, you are Mm -hmm. challenging an inequity by being there. And mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a lot to ask on you. It's very taxing because I, I remember, right, like you you fought a lot of racism on campus and a tough administration that does not listen to mm-hmm. student well-being and especially racialized students. But, you know, you, you feel as though that struggle is worth it because of what you can do with this degree and the power that that holds and how you can give back to your community. And that's what I think mm-hmm. is so integral about this opportunity, this fellowship. Yeah, and it provides access to the folks who want or even need, quite frankly, to be a part of that sort of linear pipeline that they feed us as as being the only way out of things like poverty. It gives them access to that space. Like if I were to be able to to list the barriers that I have, your fellowship helps eliminate those for somebody like me who comes from a, a family of refugees to be able to go into this space trying to not be a part of like the myth of meritocracy yeah. and, and being one of those model minority people just based on on what people might assume about my background, right? I think that's critical, but it's also just this weird dichotomy of being both within the system, but wanting to abolish the system. And how do we do that, I think is a big challenge. So I wonder if there have been other challenges that you faced in trying to create this program and your organization, but also just in the work that you do every day around not just representation, but like meaningful social justice work and and advocacy within academia. Yeah, I mean, I think when you say this dichotomy, I mean, that's true of anything you do, right? Like everything you do does have a consequence. And one source of your opportunity is going to be at the expense of someone else's. Like that's just, you know, inherent. Like nothing can really truly be ethical, but capitalism. Yeah, but that doesn't (laughs) mean that you're just going to sit there and then decidedly do nothing because you feel like every action is going to have a negative ramification, right? Mm -hmm. No, you you try to make choices that minimize the level of suffering that you impose on other people, but you have to be cognizant that, you know, structurally people will be undercut because of the actions you take. And that's why you have to work towards 
a movement, right? Like you cannot think that every single action that you do is going to be 100% ethical. I mean, again, you like you said, we live in a capitalist society, right? Like, and and we know that because we also use money. Like we, we are in a society, we have jobs mm-hmm. that pay, like we need it to pay our rent and, and eat food. Mm-hmm. So we have bought into the system, even though we don't believe in it. I think that is definitely a central problem. I think ultimately, like how I envision my work is like, I know that I might not be the perfect human being, but I feel that I can participate in this movement, right? Like I am just part of a process. And, you know, by the time that, you know, we are, you know, maybe in our 80s or 90s, hopefully, you know, it's it's not like we're going to be valued at the same level as white people. And like, we also know that like women of color are never going to have the same level of parity as like white women. Like we just, mm-hmm. that's, that's obvious, right? But are we working towards a movement that can try to shift the needle in that direction somehow, right? Like we're not the first activists to have tried this. We're building up the legacies of, a, of several activists that have come before us. So what can we do within our lifetime to try to work towards liberation? And that's how I see it. I know that yeah. there are so many challenges that, that will come our way and especially how you know, when new problems arise, then it's so easy for folks to just be like, okay, well, we'll deal with racism later, or we'll deal with classism later. Right now, we have this, this monumental issue called climate change, as if that doesn't also interlink with racism and classism, which yeah. very clearly does, mm-hmm. right? So it's so easy mm-hmm. for, for that to happen, like movements to be swept under the rug. So I, I mean, that's something I don't want to do. In terms of like challenges, well, there's really two salient ones that come to mind. One, when you're in this space, there's a lot of resistance. I mean, I think you can just tell when other students are uncomfortable when you call out supremacy, right? Like people do not like hearing that term because it's an uncomfortable issue. But that's the problem with the with, you know, inequality and inequities is talking about it is fundamentally uncomfortable for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. One, if you are at this dominant hegemonic group, it's uncomfortable because no one's really, I guess, addressed or refuted or challenged your your level of power. And on the other hand, if you're, you know, part of the marginalized group, it's uncomfortable because it's embarrassing, right? Think about all of the moments that you felt belittled because of who you are. It's very uncomfortable to have to raise your voice and your narrative to the fore because it's it's kind of humiliating if you are brave enough to talk about all of the experience in your life that, you know, traumatized you. And so, I mean, it's always an uncomfortable conversation, but we all have to get uncomfortable. Otherwise, you know, there's there's never going to be any progress. Yeah, and discomfort is the biggest thing that you feel, like... Some of us live through this every yeah. night, you know. I feel like I always hear that in spaces from white people in particular, is that yeah. I'm very uncomfortable with this conversation. I don't want to participate. This is awkward. Then like don't perpetuate white supremacy. Yeah. And I mean, like, <laughs> do they not think that it's uncomfortable for us to be like, well, when I was younger, people used to pull their eyes sideways and like make fun mm-hmm. of people being Asian or make fun of the food that we ate because apparently it smells mm-hmm. bad. I mean, that is so humiliating right I don't want to have to say Mm. that and it's not until recently that you know other friends of mine have been brave enough to say it and so I started feeling like okay maybe I can also start unpacking the things that I tried to suppress for so long because it was convenient it was more convenient for me to not talk about these issues but you Mm -hmm. know obviously being alongside you and just watching other folks who are really vocal it inspires me to also want to do something about it and you know I mean like another challenge we we both know this is when you have your own organization 
if your mission is quote unquote too radical, nobody wants to fund that, right? People want to fund the everybody let's be friends, post-racial society, Mm -hmm. communities can get over your differences and work together. Like that's the kind of narrative Mm -hmm. that they want. They do not want organizations that really push the boundaries in terms of completely reimagining the structures of society because people want to uphold their status quo while -hmm. at the same time looking like philanthropists for funding the select tokenized folks of color who have like not long sustainable changes but just want to do like I don't know like an immediate needs-based charity event I mean like that doesn't yeah that's like addresses a short-term need but it doesn't actually do something for like reworking our society yeah and it it reflects I think the idea of philanthropy and charity in general which is this white savior Mm -hmm. complex to a certain extent and then also tax breaks it's capitalism Mm -hmm. (laughs) like people people won't donate necessarily if you don't have the capacity to to provide them with those benefits to donating right and so it's not about supporting and funding it's not about mutual aid it's it's about creating this form of capitalism that is about doing good so to speak Mm. which i think is is definitely a struggle other people have related to funding i think is the constant theme in all of these episodes that we don't have access to money because we're racialized youth who don't all have the same class background obviously but but don't come from generations of wealth that we can either self-fund this to to make it sustainable forever yeah or or have people donate in that capacity so i think is is a great point and at the same time it's like to be honest i i actually would prefer to get to suck as much money out of like mainstream sources as much as possible because they are not communities where money is an issue i would feel worse about you know, taking money out of like lower income communities who believe in the mission most for sure, because they are the the kinds of communities that we want to work alongside. But at the same time, like, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're if you have bigger, more pressing issues to address, I mean, like, don't don't prioritize me, right? Like you do what you have to do Mm -hmm. to survive. And I will try to negotiate my position. And we all have to negotiate our position, like we mentioned, to try to get that funding. But you're right, like it is a, a kind of an issue that exists across a lot of youth organizing and in particular young people of color. Yeah, absolutely. And this idea when we do have to to negotiate per se, we have to be like, oh, we are the poor racialized kids who are in need of XYZ support because we are suffering and like, and, and basically like trauma porn our way out of it right in order to to get something which is so dehumanizing and humiliating mm. uh it is an, another form of white supremacy being perpetuated yeah for sure but despite these challenges we still keep pushing yeah. <laughs> and and keep going and we've built these organizations and your fellowship is starting and i wonder if there have been in perhaps your other programming or has your as your programming has, has developed little wins even that you found things that have, have pushed you to be like, you know what, this is actually successful and this is working. Where have you seen the most impact being had, for example? Yeah, I mean, this isn't even necessarily, I know we're talking about a lot of the, the fellowship, but even in our distribution of relief kits and like our mutual aid, we've managed to mm-hmm. distribute over 500 relief kits to low-income oh, wow. students of color. Is that a sustainable vision for educational justice? 
No, it's not. But mm-hmm. I think it fulfilled an immediate need. And we were actually yeah. able to send them to communities. So in Toronto, one community in Jane and Finch, and then in the Bay Area as well in the US and also in Providence in Rhode Island. And then also in Cambridge, where I'm based now, in partnership with like a racialized group of like Black Lives Matter equivalent here. And so I think like, there are things that we are doing, like organizing on the ground, despite the fact that COVID has restricted a lot of our ability to organize. So I think that is a small win, as you mentioned. And I think, you know, because of COVID, we are more open to having these virtual relationships. And so I also have developed mm-hmm. mentorship programs with high schools and so that we can help low-income high school students apply to university in the same way that this graduate fellowship is aimed at recent university students to apply to postgrad programs. So there are things that are being done for sure. And I think most importantly, you know, what prompted me to really conceive of this fellowship idea is that I feel like the majority of students at Cambridge, for instance, maybe I cannot really resonate with their experiences. And and you, you know, if you came here, you would just, it would take you five seconds to realize that, you know, there are some students who for instance, can afford a program like the business school here costs like 60,000 pounds a year to attend. I mean, that's just obscene, right? That's an obscene oh, amount of money. Yeah. But some people pay that amount. And, you know, if if that's that's not even a consideration that they have to worry about. But for other most students, that's just you wouldn't even consider the idea of attending, you know, without funding. So I think like, you know, that's yeah. the kind of majority of students who do go and exist in this space. I'm not saying everyone. I mean, a lot of my friends are on scholarships. And I think that that is, you know, also there is a, a cohort of people who definitely need to be here with funding. But, you know, the fact that especially at the, at the master's level at Cambridge, a lot of students can just get their parents to pay. And I think despite that, there are a few people that I have met and that that really don't believe in that system. And ironically, they come from you know, Harvard, they're at Yale, they're at Princeton. I mean, they are at these very schools that are so entrenched in white supremacy and elitism. And and so it's, it's quite interesting, right? Like, that's very unexpected to me that I, you know, the people that I find to be working towards Mm -hmm. liberation, they come from these, these schools that are, you know, so, so elitist in nature. And yet they are trying to use that privilege, having carried Mm -hmm. a degree from these institutions to to shift that narrative for future generations. And so I feel like mm-hmm. in terms of like, you know, small wins, it's actually just meeting them and and realizing that, you know, I cannot say that every single person at these institutions are a product, you know, or, and, and simply kind of think like this to uphold white supremacy because there mm-hmm. are some people out there that are quietly radical, actually. And it's, you know, I've actually even met a few white allies who are, really working in spaces to actively challenge their own identity. And I think that that's something that's really interesting, right? Like, you know, it's not what I had expected when I went to Cambridge, but that's actually Mm -hmm. one thing that I have found. But, you know, again, typically they have had experiences that enable them to resonate with communities of color, whether it's, you know, receiving academic training and support, you know, from like Cornell West. I mean, you know, one of the fellows this year has actually been trained under him. So you can see that. Oh my gosh. You can see (laughs) that there are reasons why this kind of emancipatory framework exists. Like this is not a coincidence, right? And another Mm -hmm. student who's, you know, a, a friend of mine who is now doing their PhD at Harvard also, like they are really devoted to prison abolition and 
And I think that is something that, you know, they don't necessarily have to care about because they are white, but they still do. And I think, I mean, I think everyone should care, but, you know, it's so easy to be complicit when things don't affect you. There are definitely some small wins, as you mentioned. And it's mm-hmm. the important part is like seeking those folks out, right? And then like, how do you leverage those relationships and friendships to do something meaningful? And so what does either a small win or, or really success look like to you for this fellowship program that you've created? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really hard to know what this application cycle is going to look like, because we have half of our 10 fellows already selected. So five mentors, and then we're seeking the other five. And what we hope to do is one, we, we prioritize low-income students for sure. Like that's non-negotiable really because it is about access. And I think that just the ability to afford postgraduate studies is something that is such a difficult undertaking. And we need, we want to help students get scholarships so that they are not paying for their education. Like nobody should have to pay for education to begin with, but unfortunately we're having this conversation. So that's one. And two, like you mentioned, you can't really talk about class without talking about race. And so we do want to focus on students of color. Uh, But three, we actually also want to open up applications to students who live in the global South, especially with like COVID and, and just understanding how virtual organizing can take place. We do believe that we would be able to have fellows in, in different parts of the, the, the world. It shouldn't just be this U.S. centricism, U.K. centricism, Canada-centric selection of fellows. I mean, we only have five spots left. So this is perhaps me romanticizing how this process is going to look like. But that is what I hope. But, you know, of course, there also has to be good synergy between the mentors and the mentees, right? Like we don't just want to like have mentors that can't actually provide adequate support. I mean, if if a student is an indigenous student from Brazil and none of our mentors understand the lived experience of that student or couldn't help that student achieve what they want, then unfortunately it just it I feel bad, but it wouldn't make sense to also, you know, it wouldn't be fair to that student, right? Because we can't provide them in that support. So that's also like a, a, a question that we have moving forward is how do we provide the best support to the fellows that are selected as mentees? Yeah, and I think it's great that you're being cognizant of what those needs are, because I find so often people will create programs like this, like fellowships or internships or whatever opportunity, and just be like, you know what, we're just gonna do it and we'll deal with the problems later, as opposed to like actively thinking through how to make sure things are accessible continuously and, and supportive continuously and, and culturally competent continuously Mm. and adapting to those changes. So I I hope that that proves to be successful because I think that way of approaching developing programming is is really key to a lot of folks in in ensuring that they have access to those spaces. Do you feel like when you have your microgrants fellowship or even the fellowships that you ran last year, I mean, did you feel like you had any lessons learned that you did not expect or I mean what what are the kind of challenges you ran into because I'd be curious about what that looks Mm -hmm. like and how you attempted to mitigate those unintended consequences yeah so I mean last year was very different it was very much a lot more low-key a lot less pressure because people weren't obviously not being paid as well and and there wasn't a micro grant component it was literally just like me shelling out $500 so that people could have some money to create projects in their communities and for their communities. And, and this year is is rather different because it's funded and we have both an honorarium, a micro grant and, and customized 
workshops like we did last year, but these ones I don't have to give. So what we've been trying to do is, is make sure it's as accessible as possible continuously. So that includes things like making sure food is subsidized and that internet can be subsidized and that people have access to, to this space for healing and not just for productivity, quote unquote, but, but to continuously sort of ask people what their needs are and then meet them. Mm. <laughs> it sounds very simple, but I think that has been my attitude towards it since since we we started it this year again was just to be like okay tell me like literally as soon as you have a need what it is and then we will figure out how to ensure that that need is met so Mm. that you can participate in this fully whether that's like you know today I'm not feeling great and I cannot be present and therefore I I cannot attend Mm. cool how do we make sure that you get caught up and, and how do we make sure that you're supported because you're not able to to join today, not just supported in a way that will push you to be productive in a sense, but how do we support you in a way that is good for your overall well-being? Mm-hmm. Because I find so often that when you do community work, like I, I am exhausted all the time and I don't know how to relax and take breaks and, and do all those things that you're supposed to do apparently. Yeah. But I do know how to help support other people and how to be there for other people. That example just shows two things, right? Like one, as we were talking earlier, I mean, there are still ways to resist, even though you're still fully entrenched in this capitalist, rigid space, right? You, mm-hmm. you know, especially if you look at a capitalist society, everything is about maximizing productivity against a timeline and having certain deliverables done against, you know, by this date or by this time. And what you're saying here is, okay, yes, we are still living in this society. Uh, you have a job, you have only so many hours that you can devote towards your organization. On the other hand, you're still taking the time to be like, if you need to take some time off, you need to prioritize your health and your mental health and your sanity first. And I think that that is a a form of resistance, right? That way of thinking, that's just so not how most organizations run. Like Mm -hmm. thinking about the needs first of that individual and then not asking for documentation because if you look at like any bureaucratic institution, they always ask for paperwork, right? Like when you're sick and they Mm -hmm. want documentation from the doctors to prove that you are sick, you know, but like your organization trusts the, the, the kind of voices of those you're working with as you should. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's just wild Mm -hmm. to me that it's like, if you are sick and you cannot walk straight, why would your priority be to get out of bed take public transportation, go to the doctors, wait for two hours, and Mm -hmm. then just to get a sign. No, that doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, like just the element of trust is so eroded in our society. And I think that the fact that your organization isn't skeptical, I guess, of of how folks express themselves or express their needs is a really, really positive attribute of your organization. Oh, thank you. And I think it's like, I mean, I don't practice it for myself, which is probably a problem. (laughs) But like, I can practice it for other people, yeah. right? And this this idea that the timeline can shift with you, I think is a, a concept of decolonizing time that we don't have access to elsewhere is like, it doesn't need to be done right now. And it doesn't need to be done right this second. And we don't have to put this work over your well-being. Even if the work is going to, in the long run, support your well-being, you can't really do it if you're not in the space to be able to do it now. Whether that's stress, whether that's being busy, whether that's just not feeling it, whether it's being ill, like like whatever it is, it can wait <laughs> so that your well-being can be prioritized, I think. And, and that you have 
community to be able to support you. Yeah. So like if somebody can't do a milestone, for example, in our program, which is like a, the cool word one of our fellows, Lilia, came up with for assignments because assignments are just so triggering for me personally. <laughs> but if, if if somebody can't meet that for whatever reason, right, to, to be able to, to support them and like, hey, can we sit down and do it together? Or or do you want to verbalize it and I'll write it down? Like, how, how do you provide support to people in ways that are actually tangible, right? And like, will, will make a difference. Mm. Being able to support doing this community work as opposed to supporting productivity, but, but supporting the advancement of, of this justice work that they're all doing. And then also being able to support your well-being. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's honestly sometimes easier to do that just within racialized communities because our cultures are so involved around that. So one thing that we do is that we'll have meals together just virtually over over Zoom. Yeah. And sometimes we're talking and sometimes we're a co-working space and sometimes we decide that we we don't want to eat collectively, we're going to eat separately. And so but those those experiences around food, for example, are things that are pertinent to racialized communities sure. and a way for us to build community together during COVID as well online. Yeah. So yeah, so so taking sort of the Eurocentric whiteness out of it, <laughs> I guess is what we're doing. Yeah. And I think like, you know, again, I think that's something that is very unique to folks of color, right? Racialized communities, because, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. food is something that is so political and also just so tied to the identity, and like mm-hmm. racial identity in particular. So I think like mm-hmm. that's something that you know, you you can bond over with folks of color. I think why I also, you know, in my fellowship, I'm not like excluding white folks from also being a mentor. I don't want, I don't think they should be mentees, but I do have two of them that are mentors or three actually is because, you know, I also feel like, yes, they're allies, but they still have a lot of learning to do. And I think that through exposure, even though we call them mentors and mentees, you know, we do want to like flatten the power hierarchies. And that's why everybody is called a fellow. And I think that, you know, those mentors would also simultaneously learn from mentees, right, if they are white, because, you know, just listening to the experiences of racialized communities is so important, because these are narratives that are not dominant in mass media, they're not dominant in, in the news. And so, like being able to give them space to self-represent. I mean, that is a learning experience for white folks as well. So I think that's something that um, I aim to do. But I also Mm -hmm. understand 100% that also having these spaces that are only for racialized communities is also so integral, right? Because you need to claim that space and just have like a a place to feel safe and like comfortable to like say things Mm -hmm. without like feeling like there's going to be some kind of repercussions because you're being honest. Absolutely. And just a, a, an environment where you can be yourself without the fear of, of white supremacy, mm. right? And and that's not to say that people of color can't perpetuate white supremacy, they very much can. And so being around folks who don't do that is yeah. is really helpful. Yeah. So, yeah. That is also part of the aim of the fellowship is I won't officially be a fellow, but I will be also helping out the mentees that we select. And I think like one of the things that I hope to do is also just be honest about like some of the things that have happened to me on campus, because I feel like, you know, kind of creating this whitewashing this image of like this fairy tale of these elite universities is just not a good thing to do if if you're setting them up for failure, right? Because if they attend these institutions and then they come find out that they're in a very hostile environment, then I've lied to them about what they should actually potentially expect when they enter these spaces. And so I think also the the reason why we want to 
select these mentees students of color is that we want to say like hey like this is what's happened to me you're this is the beginning of like or you know not necessarily the beginning but this is part of the process of a lifelong struggle you're going to battle with you know like especially as you move up higher into these incredibly like elitist spaces you are going to deal with white supremacy with class supremacy you, you're, you're for like the next 50 60 years but this is how I dealt with this situation or these are community groups that I got involved with that helped me feel safe and comfortable and maybe these are some resources that might help for you and that's what it is right mm-hmm. it's like just about transferring knowledge like you said like you this program for you maybe you're not thinking about grad school in the immediacy but in the future when you are you would want people to kind of tell you like these are the experiences that I have or you know this is a scholarship you should look at because it's really well suited for your interests or you know like that guidance is so integral right Mm -hmm. these are networks that Mm -hmm. low-income students of color do not have and so like if you're wherever in that position you have to you know you have to give back like you just have to I mean it's something that I always tell myself right like if I'm ever in a position to give back like I I absolutely will and and that's what you're doing too which is you know obviously why even though we haven't seen each other physically since 2017 we're still talking oh my god it's been four years but yeah yeah no you're 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 right and it's this idea of like intergenerational knowledge sharing and peer-to-peer knowledge sharing and building capacity amongst communities because it's capacity that not that we don't inherently have but like was quite literally taken away from us mm. in every possible way and, and so I think that's really important and I'm, I'm glad to see that your work has been so successful and, and the fellowship is opening up. How can people apply to be a part of the fellowship? And what other opportunities do you have available right now with the Solidarity Library that folks can check out? Mm, Yeah, so the Resource Hub is always open, like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. I mean, that is there as a resource hub for folks who are wanting to learn about different social issues and want a centralized space where they can learn about and go to these several links that will direct them to other toolkits or multimedia material or articles that will try to destigmatize conversations around them. But I think in terms of our actual programmatic work, so where you can find our fellowships, where you can go onto the solidaritylibrary.org and then under the tab TSL programs, if you hover over it, you will find a link that says EDU Justice Graduate Fellowship. That is where the details of the fellowship are listed. Our mission is listed. An overview is given of how the fellowship functions. There's a Q&A and a timeline. And then there is also an apply button, a green button. And it specifically says the details and the requirements that is expected of the mentees. If you click the apply button, it'll redirect you to a PDF form. And then uh, eventually when you are ready to submit that form and then a CV and transcripts and a letter of recommendation to fellowships at the solidaritylibrary.org. I will say if any of those requirements are not possible, while I think it would be harder to assess the application, I don't want to say that we will reject folks point blank because of it. And I think that that just needs to be discussed as like an extenuating circumstance. And we would evaluate that on a case by case basis. And Mm -hmm. then in addition, if one doesn't have a laptop or internet at home, you know, I I do also, like you said, you, you provide stipends for internet. And I think that that's something that is a good point, right? Like we need to also, if we are an organization committed to equity, then we also have to supply that need that not 
all folks have internet at home. I, I didn't have it at home when I was growing up. So mm-hmm. uh, I understand that that can be truly a difficult need. In addition to the fellowship, we do have a program geared at high school students, but they're only currently limited to partnerships that we have with high schools right now. So that's a get a bit more institutional, I would say, not like an ad hoc, you know, anybody can apply from around the world. But hopefully, if we ever have an, a surplus of money, a cash injection, then perhaps we would be able to upscale that. Our relief kits and mutual aid, we're actually waiting to see if there is a high demand for them again. And if that's the case, then we're also hoping to distribute them again. And then lastly, we actually just started a scholarship section. So there's two parts to the scholarship program. One, we have an external scholarship list. They're not our scholarships, but they are grant opportunities for organizations who are committed to justice. And they can go to this link and see a list of external scholarships that they might be eligible for that they can apply to. But again, like these are not, that's not our money. And then secondly, we also have internal scholarships. So that is scholarships we have fundraised for. It depends on the category. We only have a few available. One is for a high school student, but also some are related to PhD students and master's students. So we have, you know, the Enviro Justice Scholarship, which is a scholarship awarded to an undergrad student who studies issues related to race and climate change. There's another scholarship for gender justice. So for women of color who studies or organizes on issues related to gender. So we do have these scholarships available. And if you are interested in it, then there is instructions detailing how you can go about applying for it. The scholarships are going to be evaluated twice a year, though. So it's not like something that's given like every month, unfortunately. But we are, you know, this is something that's contingent on funding. So hopefully, you know, if we do receive this hypothetical cash injection one day, we can also like further upscale the kinds of scholarships that we provide. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, we are like essentially now truly focusing on educational justice and like knowledge equity. Like I like, you know, we did start as a resource hub, but you know, now that I I will be entering my PhD soon in a few months, this is the kind of space that I have access to. And, you know, like we talked about this entire podcast is like this is how we can leverage the networks and the power that we do have to give back. Right. And so like, you know, a lot of our work is really truly around education. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us for this past hour or what will eventually not be a full hour when it gets edited. But for for joining us and sharing these opportunities, I hope folks will apply if you're if you fit the criteria, the Edu Justice Fellowship. But just before we let you go, I have a little closing segment that we run called How I Would End Racism, which as young leaders of color, we're constantly trying to actually end racism, or at least reduce the harm that it causes both to ourselves and to our communities. But what if we could do so instantly? Mm. So what is your funniest creative pitch on how you would end racism? (laughs) I'm always privy to the like Thanos snap (laughs) of getting rid of white supremacists that way, but without the return. (laughs) even though marble is like military propaganda, but we can get into that another day. But yeah, what is your what is your way to end racism if you could? So would that mean in your situation, those that also control mass media or anyone who subscribes to white supremacist beliefs would be gone in like that snap? 
anyone, yeah, literally anyone and anything that has to do with white supremacy and perpetuating it with the snap of my Thanos finger would just disintegrate like Spider-Man. So then that's no longer a capitalist society either. So I'm like really trying to imagine this society. (laughs) I didn't say it was fair, but (laughs) it's just what I would do if I could do anything. Yeah, you went immediately for the the long-term vision, didn't you? (laughs) Yeah, I'm addressing addressing immediate harm with the swiftest possible solution Mm. and making it long-term so that it's sustainable, you know? Yeah, when you said that, to me, I wasn't thinking of something that grandiose. Like for me... It's it's really the microaggressions that get me, right? Like, just if we remember the, the amount of performative allyship that happened after George Floyd was murdered mm-hmm. and, you know, all those mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. white people that said racist things to you in undergrad, in high school, or, you know, in grad school that all of a sudden felt the need to post about it's not enough to just be not racist you have to actively be an anti-racist or there was that like phrase that everybody was posting and I think for me like that like hypocrisy is what really bothers me when there's like a pretense that folks are progressive but they're not like they're just unaware of mm-hmm. the whiteness in them so I think like mm-hmm. or they are and they're insane yeah that's also probably the bigger reason <laughs> I would say like for me when you pose that question I just, my least favorite, I can't say least favorite, one of my least favorite is like, you know when like white folks look at you in a way that's just like so ruthless? Just like, I don't even know how to, I wish I could see you on a video right now, but it's like, they look at you from like the corner of your eye and then you're just like, you just want to like walk away and like cry in your room because it's so dehumanizing Mm -hmm. when they don't even have to say anything mean, verbally assault you or, or physically attack you, but there is just a look that they give you and you immediately know mm-hmm. that you are subhuman. I mean, that's that's what it feels like. Yeah. When I was thinking of that question, I was just saying, I want to like eliminate that look somehow. Because like that's mm-hmm. just to me, like it's it's wild that like silence can still kill you emotionally. Mm-hmm. But I know that that's mm-hmm. not as liberating as Thanos snapping his finger at you <laughs> but I thought like just in my mind I'm like I cannot like whenever I get that look maybe we can repurpose those snapchat glasses for that <laughs> I think that could work let's repurpose those snapchat glasses from like five years ago or whatever it was and <laughs> make it so that it eliminates anyone who ever gives you that look yeah I mean it's it's really the microaggressions that get to me right because every time you say it to somebody else they're just like no you're just overreacting and it's like no in the mm-hmm. aggregate this is what's going to take like 10 years off racialized people's mm-hmm. lives right like the buildup of all of these small yeah. things and then like the structural mm-hmm. forms of oppression take like 30 years off our lives but whatever you know it's another story yeah maybe that that 80 to 90 mark we were talking about <laughs> earlier was generous <laughs> for our life expectancy <laughs> it's okay it's fine we, we will live great wonderful lives in spite of the white supremacy yeah. but thank you so much for joining us Mayumi and I'm so excited to see what happens with your with your first cohort of thank fellowship. you and let me know how I can support your organization as well thanks so much for having me on